may be seated. The greatest gift that we could ever receive is the greatest gift that we could ever re-gift. Christmas morning finally came, and the young boy was holding in his hands the one gift that he has had his eyes on for weeks there safely under the Christmas tree. It was a gift from his parents. And so when given permission, it's time to open presents, he ripped open that present, just destroyed the beautiful wrapping paper, opened the box, reached in, pulled out the gift, and said, a girl's sticker book? But I'm a boy. This is the worst Christmas ever. The worst gift ever means the worst Christmas ever. Of course, his parents meant that as a joke, but it was no joke to a young boy who wanted an action figure or a truck that he could play with, but he received in his judgment the worst gift ever. Maybe you have received a gift that would be described like that. But today we want to look at not the worst gift ever. There are plenty of those amongst human beings, right? We want to look today at the greatest gift that has been ever given. The greatest gift that can ever be received. The greatest gift that can ever be re-gifted. And we learn about this gift in our scripture reading today from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. So turn there in your Bibles, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And before we read this passage, allow me to pray for us that we might have God the Holy Spirit's work in us to understand the precious truths that he has communicated ever so clearly but powerfully in this, the very word of God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to this text today already having experienced so many manifestations of your love. But today, Lord, we want to focus on the greatest manifestation of your love in the giving of your Son for our salvation. And Father, it's possible that there would be one or two or a number here today that have never received this greatest gift. And our prayer would be, oh Lord, might this be the day that they would receive and rest in this gift that you have given. For others of us, we have received the gift. And Lord, I pray today that you would remind us of the fact it is the greatest and it demands us to love others and so open the eyes of our hearts the ears of our hearts to see and hear your word change us O lord 
grant us to love you as we have received your love and to love one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the word of God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The Word of God. The sermon outline is very, very simple. It follows what I see are the two main aspects of this passage. Keeping in mind there's much to talk about in this passage, but we'll restrict our time today just to two main points of this passage. The first point, the greatest gift that can ever be received. And then the second point, the greatest gift that can ever be regifted to another. The greatest gift that can ever be received is God's gift, His love manifested in giving His only Son for our salvation. Look at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. We'll just simply read the first part of that verse. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And what we see here is that God's love is the priority. He loved us before we loved Him. We know, at least this is true of me and perhaps of you, that it's easier to love someone who is lovable. It is easier to love someone who loves us. And so our love, human love, tends to be conditional, conditioned upon the object of our love being worthy of our love. But God's love is not like our love. His love is unconditional. We see the priority of His love. He loved us before we could even think of loving Him. And so the passage that we read as the assurance of pardon, I just simply want to read the first part of that again. Romans 5, 8. God loved us first. And then we read from Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners. While we were still in bondage to our sin nature grotesquely unlovable in God's eyes, capable of only one thing, that is love for self. 
while we were still in this depraved state under God's wrath, enemies of God, God loved us while we were still sinners, while we could not love God in any degree or at any level. He loved us, and it had to be so. We could only respond in love first having been changed by the love of God, radically changed by his love. So God's love is the priority, but God's love is also costly. I mean, what is the definition of love? It's action, loving actions. I love what J.I. Packer says about God's love, the greatest action, the most profound definition of love. J.I. Packer says this, God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners, whereby having identified with their welfare, he has given his son to be their savior and now brings them to know and enjoy him in a covenant relationship. Now, I want to complete 1 John 4.10 and also Romans 5.8. We read 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And then we read, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We read Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us not while we were still sinners. And then the verse continues, Christ died for us. Let those two verses sink in. God loved us before we could love him. God loved us in the state of being most unlovable. What was the cost for God to love us? It was the gift of his one and only and unique son, Jesus. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, fully God. Jesus, who voluntarily submitted to the will of the Father and came down and took a human nature, fully God and fully man. Jesus, who, identifying with humanity, lived an absolute perfect life, obeying every aspect of the law of God, fulfilling every stipulation of the covenant of grace, Jesus, the only man who has ever been and ever will be perfectly righteous, Jesus actively obeying the Father, Jesus passively obeying the Father, who submitted himself to death on a cross in order to atone for the sins of his people, who submitted himself, his body, to be given to the grave and who rose and ascended that our sins might be dealt with. Why would God pay such a price 
the price of his one and only and unique son to love sinners while they were still in their sin. And the answer is, we've already read the answer. God loves sinners. And he has purposed that sinners, some sinners, those of his choosing, would live with him forever and have everlasting life. The reason Jesus came was to pay the cost of God loving sinners like you and me. And I do not know, this may be an overstatement, but it may be that we don't reflect upon that reality enough. Of not just the priority of God's love, but the cost that he paid to give us this gift. Going back to our text today, 1 John 4 and verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then adding to that a very well-known passage, John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so that's the truth that, that John declares the love of God manifested in the priority of his love and in sending his son the cost of, of his love. And now I'd like to just simply just very quickly go through a number of facets of this gift, not, not every aspect of the the way this gift blesses us day in and day out. But I'd just like to name a few. When we receive God's love in Jesus by faith, we receive a perfect record while being imperfect. And this is the doctrine of justification. That we are progressively being sanctified, but we're imperfect. We continue to struggle with sin, but yet in the courtroom of heaven... We are accepted as perfectly righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. Justification and sanctification are, are aspects and blessings of the love of God. And so we receive a perfect record. We receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. Galatians 4, that Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law so they might receive a, adoption as sons. J.I. Packer says this about adoption, that it's the highest privilege the gospel offers, higher even than justification. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. We receive power to follow Jesus. When Jesus was telling his disciples that he was going to leave them and ascend into heaven during that 40-day period after the resurrection before his ascension, they began to fret. And Jesus said, don't fret. <laughs> I've got to go. I've got to go and reign in heaven, but I will go and the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, will come. And he must come and empower you. Remember Jesus' words in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and ye will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We receive assurance of salvation. In fact, in our study of Ephesians, we ended uh, to break for Advent, but we reflected on the Holy Spirit being the seal and pledge of our inheritance in heaven. That's assurance. In Him, Paul says, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of God of his glory when we receive God's love we receive an advocate who is in heaven we Jesus is that defense attorney there before the throne he is continually working and ministering as our great high priest in heaven interceding for us and John writes earlier in 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 John my little children I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And when we receive God's love in Jesus, we receive a king. Jesus is the Lord of lords and the kings of kings. And in particular to you and me, Jesus as king has subdued and conquered us And he has subdued and conquered all his enemies and our enemies. And all of that was to bring us under his gracious rule. I mean, we are children of a king. A king who loves us. A king with a big heart. Who only does good for his subjects, his children. And I'm reminded of this very familiar passage here at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. And lastly, just enlisting a few of the benefits of God's love, we receive a heavenly home. Looking at John 14, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, there his, Jesus' disciples were fearful as he was telling them that he would have to ascend. And Jesus said this, Let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I mean, where is Jesus now? He is reigning in heaven. He has prepared a place for us, and he will come again and fetch us home. We have a heavenly home. Just think about God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Then begin to think about the ripples of glory and blessing that flow from that. We are loved. And today you may not feel very lovable, but I'm here to tell you, God, if you're his child... God loves you 
right where you are. And you know the proof of that, that he loves you right where you are? He loved you before you even thought of loving him. And he gave you the greatest and most precious gift that has ever been given. You're loved to the greatest extent ever. You know, often we, we receive a gift and we want to respond by, by giving back a gift roughly of similar or maybe a little bit greater value. It's just part of human nature. It's hard to receive a gift and not want to give a gift back. But in this gift that God has given us, the reality is we, we can never repay him for it. And the great news is this, God doesn't ask us to repay him. He gives it freely. He gives it and wants us to receive it, wants us to rest in it, wants us to live out of it. He gives it because all he, all he wants is us. We're the whole realm of nature and mind. That were a gift far too small. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. And all God wants is us. The greatest gift you can ever receive is God's loved gift of Jesus for your salvation. And the greatest gift that we could ever Regift is God's love gift of Jesus. What do you do with a gift that someone gives you and you really appreciate the gift they gave it out of love for you and out of thoughtfulness and kindness, but you open it up and you really don't need it and you may not want it. So what do you do with it? You're thinking, well, if this gift is destined for a shelf or the back regions of a closet and never to see the light of day again well i've got some advice for you re-gift it just re-wrap it and give it to somebody else uh, i may have received some gifts like that maybe you've received some gifts like that now listen you may you may think tim that's really bad advice uh, th that's not very very nice to re-gift a gift but it is kind of efficient and it's certainly not wasteful right well if if you think that's bad advice okay but I will say this that regifting of a gift does represent I think a theological truth that we see in the passage that is before us uh, today you know the, the the first point of the message the greatest gift is Jesus, really is, is the truth that John states. It's, it's orthodoxy. It's the fact. And then the second point of the sermon today that's represented in verses 7 and 11 is in light of this truth, 
God manifests his love for us in giving his one only son for our salvation. In light of that truth, then how am I to live? Orthopraxis. And John tells us here in verses 7-11 of 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another. And then he says it again in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the greatest gift that we could ever receive is the greatest gift that we could ever re-gift in the most positive way (laughs) to someone else. I mean, love one another. Understand, this is not a suggestion. It is a command that John gives, and it's a command that's given in many places in the Scriptures. And the one another in this passage is first and foremost one another as believers. So it's love for one another in the church. But I think that we can certainly extend that to just simply loving our neighbor like this as well. But the import is for how we love one another here at Covenant Presbyterian Church. Let's just make it really apply to us here in this church. So we've been given the greatest gift ever. It's also the greatest gift that we can ever re-gift. But the analogy of re-gifting kind of falls down a bit here in that typically when we re-gift a gift that we have received, we divest ourselves of it. It's, it's, it's out of our hands, right? But that's never the case with God's love. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So when I speak of re-gifting God's love, it is I re-gifted in the sense that I love my brothers and sisters in Christ like God has loved me. And that really is the principle that we find here. And, and, and I want to end the message today. It's going to be somewhat of a lengthy end, but the end is coming soon. I want to end by asking this question then. How do we re-gift this greatest gift to others? What does loving one another look like? And in answer to the question, how do we re-gift this gift, the very first thing that we need to understand is that in order to re-gift the gift, you have to have the gift. Have you received the greatest gift ever from God? Receiving it means you understand that you're not worthy to receive it because of your sin. And so you see your sin and you repent of it. Receiving the gift means that you understand and affirm that Jesus is the greatest gift, that he is the Savior, and you turn to him in faith. And so receiving the gift means you repent of sin and turn to Jesus and trust him. You embrace the gift. You unwrap it. You grab it. You hold it. You hold on to it. You live by it. You trust in it. Receiving it means you believe this verse that Paul writes in Romans 1.16. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek.
Listen, friend, today, if you know that you've never received the greatest gift ever, the gift of Jesus, I have the privilege of offering that gift to you today. And I plead with you to receive Jesus in true repentance and in true faith. And find that indeed Jesus is the greatest gift ever. But for many of us here today, we have received the gift. And what does it mean to pass on the love of God, to re-gift it to one another, to love one another. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 tell us that if we do not love one another, it may indicate we don't have the gift in the first place. Listen to what John says in the second part of verse 7 of chapter 4. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so re-gifting this greatest gift is an indication. If it is re-gifting, God's love is, is an indication that we actually possess saving faith. All right, so how are we to love one another? You know, I looked up 59 one another's in the New Testament the other day. 59. So there are at least 59 and some of these one another's is, is this simply repeating what we've been looking at here in John 4, love one another, verses 7 and 11. And then most of those 59 one another passages actually show us how to love one another. And I, I can't list them all. We'd be here ooh, a long time. But I just simply want to give you a taste of these one another passages in the Bible to answer the question, how are we to love one another? Living in harmony with one another, unity. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Bearing with one another or bearing one another's burdens. Being tender-hearted towards one another, showing hospitality to one another, encouraging and building up one another and stirring one another to love and good deeds, not grumbling or speaking evil against one another, bearing with one another in love, forbearance, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. And the last example of these one another verses is the one that I really want to look at just a little bit more more in depth because I think in one sense this this particular love one another this way is a summary of all the love one another's and here it is through love serve one another through love serve one another I want to take us to a passage of scripture that that we read in John chapter 13 Jesus said this in verse 34, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And how did Jesus love his disciples there in John 13? You know the story. 
He put on the garb of a servant and he washed his disciples' feet. Now, the way we're to love one another is, thankfully, not to literally wash one another's feet. But what the foot washing in John 13 pointed to was the extent of Christ's love that would take place the following day as he hung on the cross. You know, I, I, I remember a former saint, former ruling elder, Bud Hewitt, who's now with the Lord, who used to say, God, I've seen Bud do this so many times, God loves me this much. Or Jesus loves me this much. And at first I thought, oh, bud, that is so corny. Is it? This is what Jesus was showing his disciples, how he would love them the next day. By hanging on a cross, the ultimate service, the ultimate foot washing Jesus said in that, that new commandment that you are to love one another just as I have loved you. That's a high bar, isn't it? But that's exactly what Jesus said in John 13. That's exactly what John is saying in 1 John. And I want to look specifically just for a brief moment to our leadership here at Covenant. Now, all that I have said, all the love one another's, the new commandment, John 13, applies to every single believer here in this sanctuary and in the world for all time, right? We're to love one another. But I want to talk to our current elders and deacons. I want to talk to our inactive elders and deacons. And I want to talk to our upcoming, in just a moment, elders and deacons. Men, how do we fulfill our duties as officers in this church. It is to love this congregation sacrificially. The first thoughts that should cross our mind when we are thinking about serving as a deacon and serving as an elder is I am, by God's grace, I endeavor to lay down my life for this congregation. That's what Jesus calls his elders and his deacons to do. That's how he calls us to love one another here at Covenant. And for all of us, not just elders and deacons, but all of us who are to fulfill the command to love one another as we have been loved by God in Christ Jesus. Love is costly, isn't it? To love like Jesus has loved us means it's going to cost my time, my energy. It may even cost my reputation in the world. It's going to cost me dying to self. It's going to cost me getting my hands dirty with somebody else's mess. It's going 
to cost. But let me ask you this question. What is the return on loving like we have been loved by God in Christ Jesus? What did he pay? The price of his only son. Why did he pay it? For us. Why do we love one another? What do we pay to love one another? We pay all sorts, in all sorts of ways. Setting self aside, serving, sacrificial service. And what is the return? We get us. Do you see? There is a cost of our loving one another. But we get sweet fellowship with one another. And it's a price worth paying. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. From sorrow, toil, and pain, and sin, we shall be free. And perfect love and friendship reign through all eternity. The cost is worth what it purchases. In the words of this old hymn, perfect love and friendship reign in the church through all eternity. The greatest gift we can ever receive is the greatest gift we could ever re-gift, the gift of God's love in Christ Jesus. And may the love of God manifested in the giving of His Son be the hallmark of Covenant Presbyterian Church, both in receiving that gift and in regifting it to build up the body, to strengthen our brotherly and sisterly friendships that will last for all eternity. May we love one another as we have been loved by God in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your love for us. And we ask, O oh God, that you would give us all that we need, that we would love one another out of the overflow of your love that we have received through faith. In Jesus' name, amen.